Welcome to the Cowboy Office Show, where you'll experience expert analysis and epic discussion on key pillars of the equine industry, including sports, business, hobby, and the horse lifestyle. Your co-hosts are Jody Brainerd and Brian Dykert, industry veterans with over 120 years combined living the cowboy lifestyle. The Cowboy Office Show will help you get involved, ask more questions, and create change. We'll keep riding for you as together we learn from the ride already ridden, learn to listen better to our horse, and make our industry better for all. Each weekly episode, we'll take a ride around the industry in less time than you can load the truck and trailer. Drop your email at cowboyoffice.com to receive weekly updates and never miss an episode. Settle up as we ride into today's show. Well, hello, horse world. Don't forget, go to cowboyoffice.com, put your email in, saddle up, and ride with us. We have a special guest today that is not only a lifelong horsewoman and sharp businesswoman, but she has recently crossed over to the wild side. From traditional equestrian activity over here to the cowboy way, and even dressing our way now. But anyways, we're going to have fun talking about um, her very unique uh, aspect in the business. Welcome to the Cowboy Office. I'm Brian. And I'm Jody. Uh, welcome, everyone, as we talk uh, the business of the horse show business, which is a huge topic. Um, where we're headed in the horse show and event industry, um, I'd like to welcome Marnie Langer, president and CEO of the Langer Group, based in Los Angeles, California. She is a published author, the Tevis Cup, To Finish is to Win. She is a five-time National Journalism Award winner for Equestrian Press, general manager of Hanson Dam Horse Park. Uh, she is an official, the USCF R judge in Hunters, Equitation, and Jumpers. Uh, the Langer Group consists of a group of businesses in the horse business, LEG Insurance Solutions, a boutique equine agency, Hanson Dam Horse Park, uh, boarding for 200 horses, 18 trainers, full events calendar of shows, Special events and parties, uh, Hanson Dam Riding School gives lessons to about 250 to 300 riders per month. To me, that's amazing. Uh, LEG shows and events, Colorado and California horse show production, uh, leg up media, public relations, marketing, social media for the equine industry. You know, Marnie, with a bio like that, you're bringing a serious upgrade to a pair of cowboys. I'm just saying. It's like uh, the Langer Group is obviously very busy and an active group um, servicing the entire equine industry. Marnie, welcome. Well, thank you, gentlemen. It's really fun to get to join you. And I've got to say, I am so fortunate to have an amazing group and team of people I get to work with. They're the ones who help make it all happen. So... As you well know from your riding and horse experience, uh, there there's a team behind the one horse and rider that are in the pen. Yeah, without a doubt. But the the business of horse business is a big, broad topic, and we're going to only touch on a piece of that as we kind of get honed into the horse show world here a touch. But um, your savvy business representation, while you're an exhibitor and you've been an owner and a lifelong horsewoman, all that stuff, but your business aspects are, are a little bit, whatever that, not normal. Um, a, as far as the rest of us, and especially us over here on the cowboy side. And so that's a fascinating function, and I think a big one. And people um, lose sight of this. Number one, California is the second most populated horse state in the country. 
Second, according to the American Horse Council, first is Texas, second is California, and third is Florida, with over a half million horses populated in the state. Um, I, I, I think that that is all very cool stuff. And in our time, how California, how California did stuff, so went the rest of the country. But we now find ourselves in a pretty unique spot because California is doing things pretty much a little weird. And so, <laughs> well, well, then, how, how does that apply into the horse world and, and, and what does it all mean? But the fact that from a business standpoint, you're operating, you're a general manager at the Hanson Horse Park. And it's multifaceted horse park. And a lot of people in the horse world in this country don't understand what the Western U.S. horse business kind of looks like. And your model is more common on the West Coast than it is on the East Coast. So talk just a touch because 200-plus lessons a month, 18 trainers on the same property, plus putting on events, plus running a venue, um, just... Talk about that for a touch. Hello, cat. <laughs> Sorry for the cats, but, you know, we're all animal <laughs> people at the end of the day. Yeah. Yes, we are. You know, it's interesting. You know, there's such a perception of, you know, the, the West, right? You know, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah, California, you know, big open spaces. And the reality, uh, especially in California, for where horses live is by people. And, you know, people are concentrated in Southern California and Los Angeles area, Orange County, San Diego, and then Bay Area up in the San Francisco area and, and the Sacramento Valley. And, you know, it's a huge state, but the population is concentrated in those five areas. And that's where horses have to be. And so our horses have to learn to live in an urban environment. And as land prices go through the roof, horses get concentrated onto facilities. And as crazy as it sounds, uh, facilities like Hanson Dam Horse Park are not that unusual. Now, the size and scope is is maybe a little larger than many. Um, but uh, Hanson Dam Horse Park, Los Angeles Equestrian Center, uh, sister facilities 17 miles apart, um, at Hanson Dam Horse Park, we house about 200 horses. We have stalls, I think, for 210. And there are 18 trainers there. And the reason or the structure for that is, you know, for trainers to go find their own barn and have an arena and have all the support stuff, it just prices them out of existence unless they want to go, you know, to the middle of nowhere and then there's no clients. So facilities like ours are structured so that trainers can set their businesses up there. They have dedicated or, or shared arenas, just depending on, on how big each of their businesses are. And then we have tech rooms and offices and feed storage and parking and all those things that a professional horseman needs in order to effectively run their business. Um, and then on the, on the other side, that's all of the day-to-day -day operations. We also have an events aspect to the facility where we can host horse shows. We, Hanson Dam Horse Park itself doesn't produce the horse shows. And Brian, I'm sure, you know, you're familiar with this from your tenure at Westworld, but it serves as the venue for horse shows of, of many different sizes and types. And then in this day and age, everything has gotten so specialized from, you know, the, the jumping and the dressage have one kind of footing and the reining horses and the cow horses need another kind of footing. 
and all sorts of resources. And it's really hard to be all things to all people. Um, but we try to be flexible enough. And I was really fortunate to be able to change two arenas around recently so that um, we could have two really good quality Western and reigning arenas uh, with really nice sand footing. And then we have three other show arenas with geotextile footing. So that gives us five arenas that we can, you know, do some creative and flexible stuff and hopefully meet the needs of a lot of horse people. Right. So your answer to that, a couple key spots, flexible enough, but your answer to the specific demands of our disciplines is setting arenas aside that are a little bit more focused in what they can do. Right. Then you can serve more. Is that, is that right? Yeah. We, so we have a Western trainer, a lovely uh, woman named Stacy White, who uh, came to us uh, almost two years ago now. And because she focuses on uh, the Western stuff from doing paint horses to doing a little bit of reining to doing some ranch riding, um, she needs a sand arena. That's just, mm-hmm. you know, the way it is. We have a couple high-performance jumping people. They're in our geotextile arenas. And believe it or not, there are some um, hunter-jumper people who don't want to ride on the geotextile all the time. And so uh, for those, we have, some, we have some mixed sand arenas also. I, I just think that the business modeling on all that is is very interesting, and it's very it's distinctly different than East and Midwest as far as in this country. So yeah, um, I, I know a lot of people one don't know it, and then two aren't paying a whole lot of attention to it. Go ahead. It allows us some scales of economy, you know, to have a a tractor and to have a water truck and to have a drag and you know all of those things. That's a lot of cost for any one individual, um, but. Mm-hmm. You know, we have three water trucks, which is is a lot, but we have about 15 arenas. Um, and so it allows us to really give those trainers a pretty high-level experience. And here's the thing. I'm sure, Jody, in your career, there were times you were on the tractor and there were times you were fixing the fence, but your core competency was training horses. So what we're trying to do is to allow the trainers the ability to maximize their core competency of training horses, working with riders, going to competitions, and we'll make sure the fence line's fixed, and we'll make sure that the arena gets drug, and we'll make sure that the shavings show up and all of those things that support keeping horses. Mm-hmm. Right. It is. That's, you know, that's, uh, we've, we've often talked about that, and, you know, trainers of our generation, Brian's and mine, you started and you, uh, you pieced together a a place maybe one piece at a time because that's all that you could afford to do over a period of years and uh and that essentially was your retirement fund and the the I want to call them kids today and they're not kids I mean the young men and women that are that are making a living training horses um a lot of them have gone the opposite direction and have you know just boards board you know their horses and man I, I've many times I've I've thought about uh how much more sense that makes because you don't have to fix the fence and you don't have to pay insurance and you don't have to, you know, make sure that your tractor is going to continue to run. And yeah, it would be, uh, it would simplify things a great deal from a, from a trainer of, of my generation standpoint, for sure. Yep. The, the, the business of the business. Yeah. Right. So, so let's, I'm going to pick us up a touch. Let's talk about the social license to operate. The fact that you're in California you're right there in L.A. Um, you've got an extensive uh, 
list of experience with all this stuff, but in the current, and there's several things because you published an article on, there was a pony ride in a public park in, I, I believe it's LA that had been in existence for 75 years. And they just recently, here's the article. Um, you're the author. I, you know, and it's the NIMBY syndrome, which is a common one, not in my backyard, which is always true. Um, but I find it fascinating that one pony rides would be on the radar screen, but then, you know, the rest of the social license, the social change of culture and the demand that it's putting on the modern horse industry and specifically the horse show industry. Um, and, and we're all kind of being aware and talking about it, but the reality of what does it mean and then how do we begin to be responsible with all of our business and activities. So you being a California person and there in business in all of its forms, elaborate a little bit on what does the social license to operate mean? And then if you want to share some of the experiences with having a boarding and a public riding facility, as well as a venue that's got trainers running businesses out of it and events, what's all this mean in your view? You know, I, I think, all of us, whether we like it or not, need to pay attention to this, uh, you know, this, this new phrase, this new outlook of social license to operate. Um, it's a little sobering. And I think it goes hand to hand in the fact that, you know, every single one of us has one of these and they have a camera and it links up to the Internet. And boy, that just one move taken out of context uh all of a sudden is on social media and the next thing you know you were beating a horse um and you know i think it's something we have to be really really aware of and i think one of the challenges we have especially in california but around a lot of our country is with increased urbanization people are losing touch with agricultural roots and our horses come from agriculture and so people don't have as much experience with horses. So it's a little bit easier to maybe jump on the bandwagon or get misperceptions about horses. You know, we're lucky that the horse has fortunately been a, a wonderful figure in movies and TV and music and, and, and uh, books as opposed to cows. You know, if you put cows and horses in front of little kids, they're going to gravitate towards horses most of the time. So we're fortunate that, you know, people have a fascination with horses. That's great. But boy, we'd better stay pretty on top of our game and pretty aware and make sure that horses stay relevant in our society. Because I feel there's a lot of signs that they are getting pushed out of urban areas. And like you, like you said, Brian, the, the pony ride closure was just the tip of the iceberg right so right and well we hear it go ahead Jody. no no i'm no i was just gonna t i was gonna extend that a little further just because I've, i have a question or two that i'm and not not necessarily about the pony rides but about you know the question that i was going to ask and brian please don't let me get ahead of you if you got something come up with it right after this but it was like you know you you you're a management on a venue that's you know you have borders you have trainers you give lessons you produce events um, and, you know, that socialized to operate has to affect your daily operations. And I, I was just thinking about this. Do you, 
I mean, because you're, you're at the top of the pyramid, right? I mean, so do you go, do you have a meeting with your 18 trainers and say, look, here's what, here's what can happen. I mean, do you, do you actually discuss that with them and say, look, you know, I mean, the, the crap can hit the fan if you guys aren't paying attention to your business. I mean, that was the first thing that came to my mind, you know? Yeah. I've got actually a very, very real example for you. Um, first off, I hold weekly trainer meetings. Um, they're about as mandatory as you can get. You know, obviously somebody's got to, you know, go to a show or something, but we do them on Tuesdays uh, once a month. Every month we have a trainer meeting. And it's a great way to build rapport because we're in partnership. You know, this is not adversarial. They need a place to keep horses and run their business. We need them to bring their horses and run their businesses. And we all need to pull together. And I do bring things up. Um, what I'm going to be talking to my trainers about at next week's trainer meeting for May is water usage. You know, in California, we've got a very serious water problem. We know that the horse industry uses a lot of water. And we're pretty cavalier about it, in my opinion. And talk about social license to operate. How does it play when people are having water restrictions and can't water their lawns and then they see the hose just running on the ground next to the horse while somebody's shampooing the horse? It's not cool. And, you know, there's just some common sense there. Let's, let's not be wasteful. But now because of social license to operate and being so much instant uh, information and things going on the Internet so fast, that's not a good image. And I don't think our industry is going to be too happy if all of a sudden the water gets shut off and you can't bathe horses. That's, I mean, that's a, that's a great example and a great answer. And Brian and I have had extensive discussions about water, especially since he's in Scottsdale and, and people yeah. have to truck, truck their drinking water in. But anyway, yeah. Brian, back to you. I hope I didn't sidetrack you. Did you no, have no. a question before I get to my next one that you were going to no, bring up? Go. No, go. Okay. No. Okay. All right. Well, Marnie, here's a, here's a big one. And for me, like I said, and again, it's, it's the part of this would pertain maybe to the, to the, two different states between Oklahoma and California, which are very, very different. But uh, the American Horse Council and the USEF, United States Equestrian Federation, um, are trying to address the issue of social license to operate. And we had a little discussion about this. What does this mean to you and your group of businesses? And I I had mentioned to you earlier that I don't want to get sidetracked, but... um, and, and and to be positive, the American Horse Council does some good things in Washington, um, as does the USEF. But, you know, from a trainer standpoint or a guy that made a living doing this, I, I've i always had the feeling that, you know, Washington, D.C. and, and the USEF aren't going to be concerned with, you know, what it costs me or my clients to feed a horse, to have a horse shod, veterinary expenses, the stalls, the expenses, and it does just matter horses. I mean, it's day-to-day training operations, and and I, I I really don't have any faith in them at all from a personal standpoint. But I, I if you can expound on that a little bit about about what it what it does for you or what you think it's going to do for you, it would be helpful. You know, I I agree with you. They both uh, the USCF and American Horse Council do some fantastic things. And you know, quick plug, American Horse Council, come on, everybody, do the survey. That's so yes. important for yes. us. Do the survey. If you can't find yes. it, go to the Cowboy Office website. Go to the Langer Show's website. Do the survey. That's yes. going to help all of us. Okay. Yes. Public service announcement complete. Yes. Um, 
you know, they're talking about social license to operate. You know, they're at a pretty high level. They kind of remind me a little bit of academia and, and the ivory tower. And while there's a lot of great theories and ideas and it just sounds great in the boardroom, man, I'd like to invite every single one of them <laughs> to get out of their offices and out of the air conditioning and get out here and, and go into the trenches. Come see reality. Yes, all of these ideas that they're talking about and ways of handling our horses and ways of conducting ourselves are all important things to consider. And then how do we marry it with reality? How do we marry it with, you know, day to day? Um, you know, trying to get grooms to understand the importance of shoveling a pile of manure out of the wash rack before it gets washed down into the, the drainage is really hard. Yes, I understand safe water, clean water is important, huge environmental issues in California, rational or not, they exist. And so, you know, how, how do you get the groom to care? Um, and how do we marry up some of this theory happening up in Washington, D.C. and Lexington, Kentucky, with uh, thousands and thousands of us spread around this country and, and the and the different geographic needs. I mean, California, there's a huge water issue, you know, in uh, South Carolina, maybe not a water issue, but something else. And Oklahoma's got other issues. So our, our needs are so varied and, and the solutions aren't one size fit all. Th that's a powerful statement. I'm going to just share. I know that most everybody is somewhat familiar with these numbers. The and and you're right, Marnie. The study is out from the American Horse Council, and the second plug is everybody in the horse world go fill out the survey. Point blank. According to the 2017 study, fifty billion dollar econo direct economic impact from the horse industry. That's the size and magnitude of our industry, which is very strong and very powerful from just an economic standpoint. There are 1.2 million horses active in showing. There are 3 million horses active in recreational use. All of that is pertinent to when we talk about the change in society and the cultural dynamic. And Marnie, you made the reference, and I agree with you 100%, the urbanization and the change of our society that is now getting is not directly touched by agriculture. That is a big cultural shift and it's not going to slow down. And then comes the role of the horse. But when you just try to put that into some sort of perspective and you use those numbers, then people all of a sudden start to get, I mean, now it starts to get their attention. It's no different than you're not in my backyard because well, you live in California and we don't have to worry about water, but Okay, it might not be water, but it is something. And this social change in culture and what we do with horses. And in my view, the horse is doing a significant... We're moving into the dynamic sports space, which is very powerful if we're responsible with it. And the economics could come with it. And as an industry, we've been an industry that is spending wealth. We could change that to creating wealth. If, if we all collectively were kind of focused on what those bigger goals are as opposed to the short ones. So I just wanted to add that in, but the numbers are real in today's time. And a half million horses are in California. And, and you know, you can watch the news all you want. 
and California might be losing their mind, so you think, according to the news. But the reality is there's a lot of people doing a lot of stuff, and horses are a big part of it. Absolutely. And, you know, it blew my mind in that 2017 American Horse Council study to discover that Los Angeles, okay, one of the largest urban areas in the country, and you think Hollywood and all of those things. Do you ever figure that Los Angeles is the fifth largest county by horse population? I mean, that blew my mind. Right. You, your your reflex would say you're crazy, right. but after talking to somebody like you, then all of a sudden you get it. Um, yeah, I hear you. And there's just pockets of horses throughout Los Angeles. It's it's mind blowing how many little pockets of of horse communities, from little tiny stables to you know bigger facilities like ours and and the Los Angeles Equestrian Center. It's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Well, something that I've got to just sidetrack us a touch because the LA Equestrian Center and George used to run that. And the point was his, his innovation in composting the horse manure, I thought was always a fascinating program and being in the city proper. So the fact that you could get it, you know, regulated and permitted and do that. But where I'm going with all of that is two things. One is on the water use, which is on the incoming on all sides. And do I think that we could build and create wash racks that you could probably recycle i you know i don't know 70 to 90 percent of the water used when you just do it on a wash rack and and yes do you now have to be more responsible with picking up the manure when they poop in the wash rack yeah you do but could you start to do that and be more efficient with water on the inside yes the fascinating conversation in the industry is 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 the commercial horse manure um, and, and is is that and should that be? Is it a usable biological product that could be very could create value in other parts? And the answer is yes. But as an industry, we still haven't figured out the efficiencies by which we start to do that. Um, and I think that those parts of our industry are are interesting parts to kind of talk and explore. So I don't I don't want to get too sideways on that, but I think that it's. It's it's an interesting component that not many people put thought into. You bring up the attention on the water, which I think is huge. And yes, I live in the desert. Um, I've always made jokes out of this because when I was in North Carolina, flood was, insurance was common if you were a property owner. And I actually looked forward to not having flood insurance when I moved to the desert. And guess what? I have flood insurance in the desert. So it's a whole nother conversation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Go fish. Yeah. You know? It's, it's, yeah. it's like floods. Right. Yeah. It's it's like earthquake insurance in Oklahoma, right? I yeah. mean, because, because of the because of the oil industry and yeah. frack at you know, the disposal. Yeah. But anyway, um, that's interesting. And I, I'm just going to briefly ask you this one. And I mean, you probably could talk all the way to a show about this one. But, you know, if I asked a a Saudi sheikh how the how the thoroughbred race business is he would go fantastic because he's got you know umpteen bazillion dollars and or a top 20 reigning horse trainer um but I would I'd offset that and I you know because I haven't I haven't been around this for a long time but you know 20 years ago here in Oklahoma if you had wheat pasture that you would graze cattle on all winter before you would turn it into a wheat crop you'd hire a cowboy to ride that wheat pasture and check the cows on it you know to make sure that they were okay and a lot of times you know these guys would 
like I said, 20 years ago, you're hiring a, uh, a cowboy to, to check your pastures for a hundred bucks a day. And he would, he would drive his own truck and trailer and unload his horse and go ride your wheat pasture, you know? I mean, so he, he wasn't making very much money, but it was love of the life, right? So I, what's the industry doing? I mean, you know, we've got the tops, we've got the bottom. Do you think we're growing? We're moving forward overall? And I know it's a tough question because you mentioned the disciplines. We've got as many as car styles, right? I mean, yeah. I don't know if that's a fair, fair question, but what do you no, think? No, I mean, I... You know, it's it's complex, as, as you have admitted. And I think you're right. I think if you look at the top of our sports, um, and you guys have touched on it in some of your other uh, of your other shows, you know, the the top reigning and the top reigned cow horses, you know, they're killing it. And, you know, the top jumping stuff, they're killing it. But boy, you know, that's the that's the uber wealthy or that's the small percentage of professionals who have been able to really make it in that kind of top 20, top 25 um, realm. But boy, the rest of them, I worry about. It. I, I really do. And I think we got, you know, this amazing COVID bump, if you will where, you know, as people had to stay home and everything and they got into outdoor activities, unless you were in Los Angeles, last county in the world in country to open up. God knows you couldn't be outside. Um, you know, and there were a lot of people who, who took up riding, whether it was from riding lessons to buying their first horse to buying more horses. And then as shows could happen, I think people went nuts. I, well, I hate I hate to tell you, but California drove over to Arizona because oh, we stayed open. Duh. So w w we were helping you I'm, to stay active. Go for ahead. sure. Oh, my! It was ridiculous. <laughs> it was yep. absolutely. I, I could do a whole show just on the ridiculousness of that. Um, yep. I'm I. You know, I, I just always want to stay optimistic, but I I worry about our industry. Um, again, high level sport I think is doing great, but. You know, how does somebody get started and, and afford to get started? And then how do they afford to get the first horse? And, you know, I do have a pretty rare perspective in that I get to see a lot of different aspects of the business pretty close. And on our own property, we've got, you know, of the 18 trainers, we've got a variety. I mean, we've got the gamut from a rider who goes to the international show jumping stuff to... Um, you know, some trainers who, who can only show locally at just the very smallest schooling show to some who don't show at all. And I, I, I see the look in their eyes, you know, and when their bill is due each month, if they're carrying a horse and need to pay board and stuff, and, and you see some of that money coming in slowly, or they come knock on your door and ask if they can have a couple extra days. I, I, I worry about us for that. Um, and so your your worry, let me interrupt to touch, yeah. your worry is on the entrance and the middle. Yeah. Am I yeah. somewhat right? Yeah, I think, I, I think you know, and if you think of our, our industry and even our sport as a pyramid, mm -hmm. you know, you can have a strong top, but boy, if that foundation isn't broad, wide, and strong, th at some point the top's going to feel it too. So, in your view, what's what, what's what's the hurdle at the at the entry level? Ooh. Is it cost? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think it gets down to the dollar. I'll give you a I'll give you an example. You know, one of our businesses is a riding school. Wonderful director who runs it. Uh, she runs it out of Hanson Dam Horse Park, and she mm -hmm. gives anywhere from two hundred and fifty to three hundred lessons a month 
has about 12, 14 lesson horses and a couple people who have stepped up to the plate and either leased a horse or bought a horse. And, you know, she's able to maintain a nice, steady uh, month to month of, of teaching the lessons. And, and people can afford, may, it, it fits in there. If they have discretionary income to do a recreational activity, whether it's ride a horse, take music lessons, uh, be on a competitive so youth soccer team, be in martial arts, those are all in a comparable price point. However, when her people look across the property and see a horse show happening and they say, oh, what's that? How do I do it? I'll tell you what. The answer is you got to pole vault the Grand Canyon because you can get into a lot of the other things so much more gradually, but taking that step from writing lessons two or three times a week to be able to go horse show, now you've got to have access to a horse and the fees and everything to start to go horse show really become exponential. And it's a huge leap. And, you know, I listened to your podcast on the IEA, the, Inter the Interscholastic mm -hmm. Equestrian uh, Association, and they've, they've done a marvelous job. And I don't want to knock what they're doing. It's super what they're doing. However, it's not getting people into horse ownership. And we actually, right. our riding schools bowed out of doing IEA and getting their kids into IEA competitions because the director would have to take a whole bunch of our horses out of production on the weekend to go to an IEA show. And it wasn't, it wasn't moving it forward. Um, <laughs> So it's tough. And moving and, and moving it forward on an economic basis because you're talking about what a, a business can afford to do and not afford to do and what's going to generate revenue versus just expend money. That, that's what you're talking yeah. about, right? Yeah. And so those hard choices have to be made. It's going to lead us to associations, governing bodies on all of their levels. And I hear you on the top. And I hear you. I hear you loud and clear. Um, the middle and the entry. And I, Jody and I spend a lot of time talking about this because how do we get more people riding horses? That's the bottom line. There's, there's 3 million people that have horses that are doing recreational activity. How do we get them involved in some of the organized competition? I think that'd be step one. But step two, you got 30 to 50 million people that are, you know, 12 to 30 years old that are doing something how do we get them involved with horses? That's the bigger question. And, and, and ultimately, that, it, that responsibility lies with our governing bodies in all of their forms. One, we got a gazillion of them. Even the Horse Council couldn't answer how many associations are out there. They could only answer the ones that are members of the Horse Council. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and you take the largest equine state in the country, Texas, and they don't even have a state horse council. Well, neither do we. We... we and, Neither does California. Well, there you go. Neither well, does California. So, you know, yes, I, I agree. We need to keep people connected with horses in all sorts of ways. And, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit of a free market kind of girl, so I don't really expect to look toward the major organizations for figuring out how to solve this. I, I, you know, it's like that old cowboy joke of, hi, I'm from the government. I'm here to help you. Okay. I think that was Ronald Reagan. Well, and he was a yeah, and yeah. he was a Go good ahead. cowboy. 
Yes, he was. And he came from California. There you go. There you go. Um, you know, so the, the, the cost and the accessibility are huge things. I think one of the critical things we need to do as an industry, from recreational riders all the way up to the elite, and this, you know, sadly, this is a little bit of a reflection of our country at large, we need to be so much less divisive and we need to unify behind horses, open space, and everything to do with horses. And it doesn't matter if you're riding in the run for the million, uh, a nation's cup for show jumping, or you keep your horse in the backyard and you go trail ride in your neighborhood. We have got to stop labeling ourselves in these little tribes. I'm a hunter jumper person. I'm a reigning person. I'm a pleasure rider. No, we're all horse people. You know, and I, I get some of my, my, my friends and peers spinning because they're like, so you're giving up on jumping? I'm like, no. Right. You went to the wild side. I went to the wild side. Why can't you do both? How about instead right. of but, we start replacing it with and. I do some yeah. show jumping and I do some reining and. and I do some ranch riding. You know, and I had a couple reining people be like, oh, you're going to ruin your horse doing ranch riding. I'm like, Okay. I am not trying to do level four run for the million. I want to have fun with my horse and I want to learn. So guess what? I'm going to rain and I'm going to ranch ride and I'm going to do a little Western dressage. And you know what? My horse is doing fine. So I think, you know, one of the answers is we have got to be less tribal, be horsemen. And there's so many good thinkers out there. And let's talk about how do we keep the horse in front of lots of people and how do we find ways to involve people with horses well that, that that leads us to the horse show world and so let's take let's take a look, few minutes and talk about horse show production jody do you want to yeah no i was i was just gonna there was a i was just gonna right before we get into this horse show world which we need to do like i said our time flies but i was just gonna say you know marnie that the whole problem with the with the horse industry in general and it has always been and i don't know how we get away from it but it's self-serving right everybody wants what's best for themselves and a top 20 trainer if he thinks any way, shape, or form that it's going to bump him out of that top 20, he's not going to buy into it at all. I mean, it's like, nope, I'm staying right where I'm at. So I, I agree with you. You're 100% right, which was the, uh, you know, it's a, it's a pretty big threat to the to the industry itself. But, okay, way good. Brian, go ahead. No, the self-serving interest is, yes, that's very true, and we all want it now. And I think what Marnie's talking about, one is the labels, and we're guilty, Jody. I mean, we are. And and reining being adopted by the FEI helped us as a group, the reiners, um, look at it in a and and what we all got highly humbled by with uh, once we started to interact even more so was was horsemanship was the common denominator, and great horsemen are great horsemen, and and regardless of what you may want to you know, whatever that finished product was. And I watched for 20 years, great horsemen share ideas, philosophy, training techniques, all that kind of stuff. And that was a fascinating experience. And I'd like to see us as an industry kind of keep going with that regardless of structure. But let's take that because middle and entry, um, 
and I've heard this a lot, and entry is a big one, and the industries and our governing bodies have been talking about where's the next generation for years, and all I hear is them talk about it, nobody does anything. Um, and that begins to frustrate a lot of people, me in particular, because we you can call it whatever you want. I use layman terms, and I, I call it the first ride. How do you get more people exposed to horses and on the first ride? And away you go. I think the hunter world did a, has done a phenomenal job. Their pony club, their structure across that entire industry for 70-some years has been very good at bringing people along, advancing their skills, exposing them to more. Been phenomenal. Why the rest of us haven't kind of looked at that. But it's all pertinent when you talk about horse shows today and the cost of that. And so, Marnie, you are a high-level, very diverse horse show producer on top of everything else that you do, and you produce events in multiple states. And so bear with me because the question is, why do we continue to have horse shows that are, one, very expensive and trying to serve the entire horse show industry as opposed to developing, and I know you're playing with this, Marnie, so I want you to talk about it which is developing horse shows that are more specific to a sector of the industry, whether it's open entry-level English Western horse shows versus run for the million. Well, I think some of it gets back to the trainers themselves. And also, you know, how do we get that next generation? I think one of the things we have overlooked is developing a business pathway, developing professionalism in our sport so we can show young people how they can make a living in our sport. And then it bleeds over to the horse shows because I think the trainer is so busy surviving that if he can put 10 horses in the trailer, he or she, don't get all gender weirded out on me, mm. people. Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> Yeah, I know ahead. where I live. <laughs> Um, yeah. well, I was going to say, <laughs> California's got more than two, I think, but go ahead. I wasn't going to go there. We're not going to go into politics here. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, the trainers are saying, look, I got 10 horses who will go horse show, but using my hunter-jumper background, I got to have classes from walk, trot, beginner all the way up to a major hunter class or a major jumper class because I can't divide my barn up into smaller groups and send one set off to the lower level show and another set off to the higher level show. And, you know, you guys have talked about it in the reigning and some of the big shows of how do you keep an affiliate championship that's really meaningful as well as some high level derbies and, and things like that and not go till midnight and not go for 14 days and things like that. Um, so it makes it really challenging. And as an example, we're producing, we've got three shows, big hunter-jumper shows happening in Colorado right now. We're on week two. And yes, we have e classes everywhere from, from walk, trot, and cross rails on up to Grand Prix because that's what the constituency is saying they want. And it's expensive. It's inordinately expensive. And I am, I am doing an experiment here in Los Angeles where I'm resurrecting um, a, a series of hunter-jumper shows we had called the Gold Coast Series that were three-day, kind of, uh, in hunter-jumper vernacular, B-level, you know, that kind of beginning and intermediate, nothing really high-level, but quality. So you could go get some good experience there and then go to the big show or go there because that's your level and you're happy and you feel rewarded. So I'm rebooting that after a three-year COVID craziness. And... 
I'm adding in Western. And so I've got some Western classes and some city trail and some ranch and a little bit of raining. And I had my first one a couple weeks ago and I had a little Western contingent show up and it was pretty cool to watch the Western people go over to the jumping ring and the jumping people go over to the Western ring and they were side by side. So it was cool. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you speak about the, the horsemanship, uh, Brian, and on Sunday afternoon, I noticed two trainers, one with shaps and riled spurs on and one with tight pants on. And they were talking and they were talking about techniques for training a horse and they were sharing some ideas. And I was elated because that was a little bit of the cross pollination that I was hoping we could rekindle. And but it's hard. It's really, really, really hard. And. I've got my next show this coming weekend. Um, I actually had to cancel the Western portion in part because of USEF, and that's a whole other conversation. Um, because they're making it so hard to do entry level and, and get started. Um, but, and I, am, I, have, I have slashed prices on the horse shows, just absolutely slashed prices. And, and they're still expensive, but they're not instead of a $400 stall, it's a $200 stall. And I reduced entry fees and I did some incentives for beginning riders and, and things like that. And I even did a, a Friday special. So if a trainer had a horse that they wanted to just show for one day, they could have a Friday package and really have it discounted. However, I got to tell you, uh, for my shows, probably 40% of my expense is staffing, officials and staffing. And you know, in, in fairness to all the people who, who work, they don't really care what rating show I have. They're like, well, right. this is my fee. and Works work. Works work, you know. So I – and actually some of them have been amazingly gracious and dropped their fee a little bit, uh, which I'm just enormously grateful for. And then – I try to get as many that are local, but, you know, you just still have to have some out-of-town people. Well, I can't go to the hotel and say, well, you don't understand. It's it's a B show. It's not an A right. show. They're like, a room's a room, lady. So, <laughs> you know, when 40% yeah. of your expense is there, and then probably another 30 to 35% of your expense is to your facility, and they're... While the, the check feels very high, well, now that I'm running a facility... There ain't much profit margin <laughs> off of that. No. The, the, the profit margin for the facility is, is slim, especially for these smaller shows that have 100, 150, maybe 200 horses. Well, there's 75% of your expenses right there. And that leaves the other 25% to be things like a little bit of prize money, not a lot, you know, and some right. ribbons and some awards and, you know, just all the insurance. And then you get to the end of it all and there's – kind of no profit right and so then well, you say what am i doing right which that's the big one the 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 margin on show production is so small that that's this is i'm answering my own question but why do we not see more private sector in show production and part of that is because the margin is so small and and the second is it's generally driven by some group at the state level of an organization, which are nonprofits focused on what it is they're doing. So the quarter horses do what they do and the paints do what they do and the hunters do what they do. And the, you know, walk, trot, dressage does what it does, whatever. So that's a unique dimension in our industry that again, I don't have the answer to, but 
the the work is work. And the fact that you can take cost of production, it's 100% relative, whether you do a weekend horse show or the World Cup in Kansas City, you know, 25 to 35% for revenue, for venue, 40 to 50% staff and labor and expertise. And then the rest is in prizes and rewards to the exhibitor. The production entity itself is lucky if they're breaking even. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting in the hunter jumper world, there has been a lot of privatization of of horse shows and and the professional horse show management. And don't get me wrong, our our company, you know, we've we've been producing horse shows for 40 plus of our 50 years and we've made a good living. But I would have a really hard time telling my past self if I was 20, 25 now to go down the same path. it's it's enormously difficult and you know you've seen consolidation in the hunter jumper side with these huge big mega circuits and they they control the facility and they control the the horse show competition um and it's only through those mechanisms so yes you can have the really big shows and they're profitable and worthwhile to the the individuals and groups who own them but again let you know back to where we started the middle and the bottom you know, I'm trying to see, is it is it business-wise viable to put on shows that appeal to the middle and the bottom, the little three-day horse show? And the jury's out. I- I'm getting feedback from people saying, oh, my God, we need these. And I'm like, great, then you go tell everybody because uh, I'm not going to do these as lost leaders for very long. Right, which we're back to fundamental business decisions, and so that's the bigger one. And uh, – I would question us as an industry why we can't look at rules, regulations, um, date sanctioning, all the rest of that in a very different format. Why, why, why we can, but we don't. And so why don't we? Because could there be a gazillion open entry level, you know, beginner shows? Yes. And, and could it move up a chronological ladder um, accordingly? But the economics would turn if you do it right the economics should be there and 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 the stimulus to have this is what i've seen across the entire horse show industry and i've for 30 some years horse shows are not incentivized and driven to put on a better show that's not which which that's what should be happening but that's not what's happening and we think more horse numbers more entries means better show and there's a place that the organizations could play a huge role because the more regulations you put down the harder it is for the horse show organizer to innovate and at the end of the day if if we had a little bit more freedom and flexibility the market's going to take care of itself. If an organizer's putting on a crappy product, the exhibitors pretty darn quick are going to go, I don't want to be here. But when you have so many rules and regulations that you have to follow, it leaves very little room for innovating. And I'll give you an example. You know, we also talked about having diversity of solutions based on geography and level. So, at the really big horse show, I get, I totally agree, you need to have a vet on, on site. I mean, you've got a couple hundred horses to a thousand, you, you need vet services. And the Federation, 
USEF throws us a bone and says, well, if you're a small show, you can have a vet on call. Well, I am in trouble this weekend. I, I had a, a vet group who was willing to be my vet on call. And this is a, a practice with five or six veterinarians. And I think we all know that there's a crisis in the veterinary industry, too. Right. So they have reached out to me and they said, if you have a true emergency this weekend, we'll respond to the emergency. But if you need us to come out to measure a horse or do some of those minor things, we're not going to respond. So Bill Maroney and USCF, if you're watching this, I'm, I'm going to be violating a rule because I can't <laughs> guarantee I can right. guarantee that in an emergency, which that's the real crux of the of the rule. I wouldn't want to run a horse show without a veterinarian who was willing to come in case of an emergency. But other than that, if it's not a true emergency, I have no vet service. Well, it's a three-day horse show. Who's harmed? Right. But Right. Which you know. would go to EMTs, food service, all of those things. So, Because uh, all of those regulatory mandates, I would take as to date sanctioning. Because in, especially at the beginning and the middle level of all horse show production, if it was easier to get a date to put on a better show, will a consumer respond properly? The answer is yes. But they, the consumer doesn't even get the choice because date sanctioning gets shut off in the first step. Yeah, yes. Uh, we're in the middle of a huge sea change uh, on the hunter-jumper side of things where the USEF has stepped in. And in essence, uh, in 2022, the USEF nationalized California. They took all of our licenses away from us. Just, boom, letter, no more licenses, and we're going to redistribute them. Now, the majority of the big established shows that, you know, were pretty well established and had big facilities and had multi-millions of dollars of investment, magically they kind of got what they needed to get. But it left all the rest of us holding the bag. Now, it's now I, I can get a license for what's now called a Channel Two show, which is kind of this B weekend thing that I'm doing, um, and it gives me a set of rules to run the horse show under, which is important, and you know it allows people to earn some points and some qualifying and things like that. All all very good, but other than that, it doesn't give me a whole lot because now kind of anybody can get one for the most part um so you know there's a balance between having the ability to get a horse show license be super restrictive so that you can't get competition and you can't freshen things and somebody can just park on a license that's one extreme that's a problem but when you also go all the way to the other extreme where it's like here you go we're going to hand out licenses like uh you know like water, well, not in California, um, then you start to divide a pie up into so many pieces that you, that then if your show is just hanging on, you can't afford to do the, the other things. You know, this weekend alone, there's a big hunter jumper show happening. There was one in Santa Barbara that just canceled for lack of entries. There's another one about 60 miles east of me that's going to be small and have 30, 40 horses. Uh, there's another one south of me, and they're all going to be marginal. 
who's benefiting? I don't know what all the answers are, but going to the other extreme, I don't think is helpful for us either. Right. But I, I, I would, and I don't know the inner intricacies, but my answer to that would be the market would in due time. Because those three, those three that are that are splitting up a smaller local market, should they be joining forces and doing something so that yes, they should, and that's what a normal market would kind yeah. of do, and that's what we we collectively in the horse world have not done, and that's the big piece that I poke at us on, looking at it and thinking about it, but also putting in actions to allow us to do it differently, which would be con would and the the big point is how do we put fun back in the horse show? Well, to me. There, there's three sectors of the horse world, a beginner entry level that should be a lot of fun, low cost. And I get it in cost of production. Can you cover those? Yes. Then there's a middle, which is the general population and they can work on practice and advancing skills and all that kind of stuff. I kind of call and them the weekend the, warrior. Yes. Perfect. And then you got the top and they're wanting to go somewhere and winning is got it. Well, but our rules and regulations are written for all of that. There, we're not looking at the different parts of our industry and serving those parts um, accordingly. That's my 20 cents on that one. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think our, our organizations give a lot of lip service to that entry level and that weekend warrior. But it's kind of lip service. And, right. and you know, we just... We, we need to do more collaborating and really learning to listen to one another. And I've actually started to reach out to some of my peer show organizers, and I'm saying to them, look, guys, for 2024, let's start talking about a calendar now. I don't care what they're doing nationally, and it doesn't matter what the big national shows are doing because we're not going after those people. But it seems kind of silly that we're having shows right on top of one another. Let's let's see if we can balance out our own calendar in a hundred mile radius. So right. all of us get a little bit more. And the I competitor agree. gets a better experience. Certainly. He does. You know, Marnie, for for the exhibit or I mean the the viewers that we would have here, I want to say exhibitors, right? Okay, the viewers that we would have that are watching this show, I mean, you know, because, because there's such a huge difference in cost of living, say, between Oklahoma and California. And I mean, it's just the center of the United States, agricultural area as a east or west coast, we always say by water, right? Um, so just so people understand what you're talking about from from the cost standpoint, for 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 an exhibitor, somebody that has a horse, what's, briefly, just tell us what, what does it cost to go to a horse show in your part of the country? I mean, just so they know. Well, first off, I'll tell you, um, hay, a bale of hay, Timothy, alfalfa, Bermuda, almost 50 bucks a bale. Let's just start there. Wow. Um, and yeah. and how, how, how big a bale? Is that oh, a... Oh, that's like 80-pound-ish bale. You know, a good big okay. three-string bale that yep. I couldn't yep. pick up by myself. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Wow. Right? Well, and your, and right. your gas is... Are, are you uh, guys over five, five bucks. bucks? Yeah, I mean, yeah. High, high right. fours, low fives. You know, so right there, and then just, you know, cost of real estate is ridiculous. 
So, you know, if you're going to go to a big hunter jumper show and actually, you know, I, I went to a pretty big quarter horse show about a month or so ago, and that wasn't a cheap experience either. And I could at least sleep in my own bed. You know, you're going to pay for a stall anywhere from on the low side, $250. And that's more at the, the Western discipline show on up. There's a series of shows that just came out this summer, $650 for a stall. For how long? A week. Okay. And okay. they I and they sold out. Now, we'll see how long that lasts. Right. <laughs> we'll see how long it lasts. But I mean, you know, so it's to go show at a, a big hunter jumper show. It's between $7,500 and $10,000 a week. And it breaks down about 25 to 30% of that cost goes directly to the horse show. Your stall, your entry fees, feed and shavings. Only 25-30% of that's going into the horse show. The rest of it, you've got fees to your trainer, you've got grooming fees, you've got, you know, you do the hunter stuff, you, you have to braid the horse every single day. You have to put in a fake tail. Now, none of the rules require this, but right. <laughs> we keep moving ourselves to spending a lot more money. Um, then there's the shipping the horse to the show. Then there's your own travel to the show. And then there's your food and lodging and everything. And most people, even if it's a five or six day horse show, the juniors and amateurs tend to show primarily, you know, they, they might show a little tiny bit on Thursday and they'll show Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And that's a lot of money. Wow. Oh. I'll say. Yeah. How, often, how often can they do that? Well, are they some doing of that these people are doing this weekly. Wow. And with multiple horses. Well, but, you know. a different budget. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and so <laughs> that's that uber wealthy we're talking about at the top of the sport, whether those people are themselves are going to the Olympics or not. There's just that, that cut. And they're going to have that wealth because they have that wealth. But right. what about everybody else? And. Right. You know, most people can't, you know, you got to have some level of wealth to have a horse, especially in an urban area. Let's just not dance around that topic. You know, you're not being poor and being in an well, urban you're area. Well, you're in the economic scale of the American economy that I would call it middle and upward. That's what I would say. There's because, no middle class left. Yeah. Well... Okay, yeah. we're be we're becoming minorities. I yeah. got it, but yeah, 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 and that's what you're talking about because in in a generation we're getting ready to move this industry from what was driven by the normal middle class part of the society, which was the largest part of the society, to making it an elite one. Yeah, that's what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, and you know this notion of elite is. is I mean, we all love to watch, you know, the best basketball player and the best dancer and, and the best musician. And we really don't care about watching the kids unless it's our own, you know. And so the same in our sport. You know, I want to go watch the very best reigning riders and I want to go watch the very best show jumping riders. But we've got to also move away from this notion of everything being elite and, and celebrate the weekend warrior and give the weekend warrior a path. Yes. No question. So now, I mean, we, we've talked about that, and it comes along with my next question, um, because somebody has to make the decisions that this is the, this is the way that it's going to go. So who's, who's influencing? This is one I have Ryan 
put into the put into this <laughs> about every time that we do. But who has the most influence in your world? The professionals, the non-pros, the owners of the horses, the sponsors. I mean, these decisions have to be made by someone who's who's lobbying for this to be that elite section of of the horse world instead of the weekend warrior who who's who has the most influence well i mean i think at that elite level you know when you get big money involved whether it's prize money gold medals at the olympics or whatever you know that that drives and attracts that that very high end um you know at the middle level i would say it's really a balance between both the trainers and that the trainers clients you know a trainer might really want to go to a horse show and especially a little bit bigger one, and that trainer's clients might go, you know, we did that with you two months ago, and we haven't gone to a horse show since, so we're not doing that again. How about over here, where it's a little less expensive? And I think some of our trainers get so hung up on, oh, I only go to A shows. Well, you go to A shows, but you're over in ring, you know, eight, nine, and 10, jumping the lowest jumps, blowing out the budgets of your clients, insisting they buy VIP passes and everything else, why don't you take them to 10 middle-level shows and then maybe once or twice a year say, okay, we're going to do this group outing to to the big show just for an experience. Let me ask you a simple question. Do you think the industry has enough venues and are there enough horse shows to go with those venues in today's market? Yeah, I think, again, that depends on where you are geographically. You know, in some ways in in California, we don't have that many venues to show at. If you like look in the east and, and some other places. Cause it's because you don't have a state horse council lobbying yeah. for it. Because <laughs> our real estate's too damned expensive. <laughs> well, that too. No, but you you, you got, anyways, yeah. you, you, got, you got more professional sports teams than any other state. So. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Um, Just note to self. Yeah. You know, so it's it's hard, and and the expectations on facilities now. I mean, Jody knows this being being in Oklahoma. You know, you get one big facility that just has all sorts of bells and whistles. You know, they've they've got scales of economy, but then it's very hard for the small show to go there. Right. Absolutely. Right, but well, that would lead to my view on the industry and starting to look at it in the service sectors that each part needs as opposed to the the one-size-fits-all kind of paradigm, which is where we've come from. And I call that a blessing yeah. to our industry. But I, I challenge ourselves because that blessing means we've got to look at it and treat it and do things differently. Right. I mean, I've made a decision with Hanson Dam Horse Park. I'm not going to try to get any big major horse shows there. I don't have the facility for it. I don't have the resources for it. But darn, I can be an awesome facility for the little one day one ring show on up to the three or four even five ring weekend show and up to around 300 horses i can do a great job and they can have a great experience and they don't have to pay as high a rent as they would at the bigger more complicated facility and if the really big show came to me i'd send them down a road because i couldn't do a good enough job for them i think that's a great niche to fill and i think that's that's awesome and and there's not enough of you. <laughs> I, I don't think. Um, but you know, we're having and, the conversation. We're, we're having right. the conversation. Well, we're talking so about that. And, and, 
And I'm, I'm going to specifically maybe target your state here a little bit. And we're talking about maybe growth and, and where we see this to go in the future. But, you know, I've got a good I've got a good client and a friend um, and he he grew up in Colorado, was raised in Colorado in the high country. And he said, you know, he said, my state changed. He's an Oak, he's an Okie and has been for a long time. But he said, my state has changed so much because he goes back there and he said, you know, he said, you know, a lot of Californians moved in and he said the Californians that are now coming, you know, from into Texas and into Oklahoma because the, you know, they, they feel like they can find a better place to live. And he said, it's not an issue. He said, it's really a, he said, it's a good thing. You can't blame somebody for wanting something better. He said, the problem is they vote the same when they get here. <laughs> right. He said, so, well, my, and you know, and it makes a lot of sense. It's not, I mean, it's just, yeah. the, it's the way they think. So, you know, let's, let's get out of California, but let's try to turn this state into one once we get right. there. So a cheaper you, one. Right. Do you see, do, do you ever see California finding a medium? Do you ever see them maybe swinging back a little bit? Or is it like, eh, no, it's out of here. It's gone. Well, okay. So you're talking to a fifth generation Californian and I'm white, right? you know, that's, that's, I, I'm, I'm a rarity. And my son's a sixth generation Californian. My son's going to be 30 this summer and he's going, I'm, I'm not he sees no future in California. And two years ago, I bought, oh gosh, going on three years ago now, I bought 47 acres in Aiken, South Carolina. Because for the first time in my 59 years, I don't see being able to stay here as a business person and to be able to sustain sure. a business long term. That's a great area, Aiken, South Carolina. And so good for you but that's a fascinating case study yeah so keep going i don't mean Absolutely. to interrupt. no i mean so you know i like i said you know i want to always see the glasses half full but boy I, I i worry for california and in some ways our whole country you know um yeah. but you know sure. i think if we can concentrate on the areas where we have core competencies the three of us in the horse industry and if we can just make little just just shifts of changes to making things better then then we're doing our part and i think we can put our heads on our pillows at night and and feel good about the effort we're putting into things you know i can't change the world you know it's a little bit like that great saying that the pet adoption places say where you can't change the life of all the animals but you can change the life of one animal so you know right. let's one see what time. little changes we can make and and if Brian makes a 1% change and Jody makes a 1% change and I make a 1% change. Well, that's 3%. And you do that a whole bunch of right, different yeah. places and it starts to get cumulative. And yeah. I just think sure. it comes from the ground up. I, I don't think it's a top down thing. I think it's the ground up and we have to have these conversations and talk about things. I'm going to, I, I want to take us one more spot where our time is like it always does. Jody always makes fun of us and he's a hundred percent correct because it flies. Um, and, and it's, it's when you get horse people together and you talk about these issues in the industry, we're all very passionate about. And so that's the fascinating part. And that's exactly what our show is really all about. Um, but it's the, it, it's the business of living the horse lifestyle. And I say this generically and, and in our industry, this is a unique dimension because we live the lifestyle of an activity that we also partake in, which puts it very different than any other hobby or secondary activity or whatever you're doing, even people that have a primary business. 
that space, while that's a blessing, it's got some unique challenges on top of it. And here's the big one. Because the non-pro amateur status in our business, regardless of their tax filings, versus those professionals that are truly doing the grind to make a living at it. That's a very fascinating space in the horse world. And, and so do you elaborate on that a touch. I know I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but the, the bigger point to that question is the pressure from the industry of non-pro amateur competitors. I don't care what their tax filing status is. Their competitive status is the piece. Jody has a fascinating look because we talk about leveling, you know, having a fair playing field. So the point to that is because you're a very sophisticated, highly experienced businesswoman in this industry. Talk a little bit on that touch and how do we help ourselves as an industry understanding the paradigm difference between forget your tax filing, your tax filing. It's about the competitive space of what we're doing on the activity level, and it's the non-pro amateur. In our world, in the cowboy world, excuse me, in the cowboy world, we're having this continual debate between non-pros and amateurs. I find it fascinating because there fundamentally is no difference. Yeah, so. But we're going to make it different. Yeah, and I I think I like what you guys are saying, and I'm in so I'm in this really weird, rare space. For competitive purposes, I'm an amateur, right? And I'm a non-pro, except so for reigning, I'm a non-pro. For USEF, I'm an amateur. Yet for quarter horses, I don't qualify as an amateur or non-pro because I have a judging license. So when I go to a quarter horse show, what do I show in? Um, Open. Right. (laughs) So it's, it's it's this weird thing. And yet I also, because I'm an amateur, I can step down in the hunter jumper world and show at a very low difficulty level. And I'm a very experienced writer and I've got a lot of miles and everything. I won't do it because my own moral code won't let me do it. Now, I think raining's got something pretty cool with these levels. You know, level one, level two, level three, level four. Still wrapping my head around like you all go at the same time. But you win your way out of things. (laughs) Wait till you're a judge on one of those. That'll that'll mess with your head even more. Keep going. You know, but I like that notion that... I'm going to be protected. I'm going to, I can be a rookie non-pro writer for, for years if I don't win a certain amount of money and it keeps me kind of competing with my peers. And I think there's, there's some merit to that. And then our other piece is I have got such a soft spot in my heart for professionals. My mom was a local level trainer and I see, and I, I love the professional horsemen. And as an industry, we have got to figure out how to do better by our professionals in terms of creating better business practices and things like that so that our professionals aren't struggling their entire lives. And so when they're done being professionals, except for some who've just figured it out, the vast majority are, are in serious trouble, serious trouble. 
and that's not okay. And and we need right. to look that in the eye and do something about it. Right. Which is an industry that is expending wealth as opposed to creating wealth. When you get through it, that's a statement you just made. And I agree with you. Yeah. A hundred percent. And yep. and we've we've gotta figure it out. And and these professionals run a huge amount of money through their checkbooks and at the end of the day, they're not keeping any of it. Or right. or very little. And, you know, we're in this labor intensive industry, you know, again, I don't know what all the answers are. And I think we have to be willing to put some really tough issues on the table and not dance around them. And our professionals should not be destitute at the end of their lives. It's, it's not it's it's not something that's just this generation you know i mean no. it was it was it, it was the it's it's been that way i'm sure since the, you know it's kind of like the pro rodeo cowboys i mean back in the you know back in the old days i'm you know i mean there's guys that you know casey tibbs didn't have any money when he died there's guys that are you know won multiple world championships and were broke and they think that there's always going to be another tomorrow and the the trainers of my father's generation were the same way i mean my father was comfortable, but he made huge amounts of money. He was the worst money manager in the world. So, you know, I mean, and it's a, it's a universal problem. And it's, I don't know, it's, it's kind of like you have meetings with your trainers in the National Football League. They, all of the rookies that come into the league, they go, they, they have, they have to go to, uh, to meetings that tell them how not to spend all their money on their rookie contract because they'll go through it. They don't know any yeah. better. And I, I don't know how we educate trainers I, I've told Brian, I said, the one thing that we learned um, from the generations before us, it's what not to do. So, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's, a, it's, it's been a problem for a long, long time. But I agree with you totally. Yes, but which would bring us back to the bigger one, horse business and the business of horse business. And then specifically, we're talking about the business of horse show business. And Marnie, you cross multiple dimensions. That is a fascinating case study um you yourself and so uh the other part of that would be jody said what the ability to clone you how do how do we anyways we can do it with the horses how far away are we with anyway yeah but i mean it's, uh, it's such an honor to get to be involved with something like this and and have these conversations and i'm determined to just keep seeing what little pieces we we can make better and i'm willing to roll my sleeves up and be part of it i'm just so so grateful that i have gotten to make my my living amongst you know these animals i've had a fascination with since i was this little kid and you know i grew up in very modest means incredibly modest means and i've gotten fortunate you know and i give a lot of credit to my husband you know larry langer who who really helped professionalize a lot of the hunter jumper sport and you know i hate the term give back because it makes it sounds like you took something away but i want to contribute i i, I want to take it. my skills and experience and and i want to share it it's called leave it better and that's what jody and i are setting out to do with the cowboy office using technology to leave our own industry better and we feel the exact same way because we were fortunate and we were blessed and you know, his and my generation, as opposed to his dad's and my dad's, very different times. All of those are blessings. It's it's about the rest of the responsibility, but the big one is leaving it better. Yep. And so, yeah. So anyways, I would just, that's my answer to finding the right words for that. Leave it better. Leave it better. Um, and that's exactly what we're trying to do with the Cowboy Office and having you on 
as a unique professional lady that is now playing the wild side as well as a traditional equestrian. And you can do both. You, you can, can do it do all. Both. So you yes, you can. can. So and more should follow over. your, my jumper turns yes. better because of my, my reining background and my reining horse circles better because of my flat work dressage background. So there you go. And it's just all fun. You know, at the end of the day, fun with horses. Let's have fun yes. with horses and let's share that fun and welcome that fun. I, I agree, but we can take fun because if you want to live a lifestyle and have a career, I think that those opportunities are more today than they were Absolutely. yesterday. So all of those opportunities are in front of us. It's then being responsible to what you're, if you just want to have fun, well then so be it. If you want to make a career and so be that too. And yeah. And yep. let's make those pathways more clear so that we've got people who want to come up and have a pathway to follow and they have mentors and there's some guide rails to being successful. Yep. Well, I think that's, I think that is just, I think that is great, great advice. And I think that we need to, I think that we need to, to follow up on it. You know, I, I mean, we could have, we could, it's a good thing that we don't have this show at like a bar because we still be going at midnight. You know I mean? It's like, holy cow. There's so many things that we could cover. And I just, you know, there's a million questions I want to ask you. Maybe we can do a follow-up show, Brian. You think we could? I mean, yes, we can. This lady would be awesome. Yeah, well, and I would love to, you know, hear feedback, and you know, hopefully, this is going to generate some some ideas and, and, and criticisms. Please bring on yes. constructive criticisms. Yes. And there's a lot of bright, talented people out there. I see people like us as being a little bit of conduits and um, maybe incenting it. I don't have all the answers. But man, I'll roll my sleeves up and work with a whole bunch of other people who have ideas, and I bet we can come up with some. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, but but then we've got to put in some structure and stimulus that allow us to try. Yes, because there's nothing wrong with trying, yep. even if it doesn't work. You've tried and you've answered a question, so then you hang a right turn and try that one. Yeah, right? just like training yep. a horse. There's you know yep. many ways of of training a horse, and if one thing isn't getting through, you try yep. something a little different. And as yep. long as you're just reasonable, safe, and, and kind, you can get a lot yep. done. Yep. Absolutely. Well, Brian, have you got anything else we about wore oh, this girl out? I mean, we've... Of, of, of course. We could, and, yeah. And we could go on like we always can. So um, the bottom line is putting horse people together. This is the goodness that comes out of that. And, Marnie, we can't thank you enough. Um, we congratulate you on all of your business um, endeavors, what you're doing, how you're doing it. Keep going. Um, on a personal level, you can ride all of them. So um, keep riding them all. Do as you wish. Um, the Ride with Horses is always phenomenal. To the audience, remember, um, cowboyoffice.com, you will find the entire library. This one will be published audio and video on all of your favorite platforms. Um, again, Marnie, thank you so much. I know we're going to see you again and have another topic. And until then, um, enjoy the ride. It, Marnie, I I can't thank you enough. I've I've had fun. I can't wait to meet you for real, right? <laughs> instead instead of just through the instead of through the camera, we're gonna have a good time. I promise. Um, you know, I I was laughing to myself because you told me that your mom was uh, Miss Rodeo America runner up. 
Um, and I always said this lots of times, but you can't swim outside the gene pool, you know, so it's, it's in there, right? You, you can't, there's no way you can get rid of that. But anyway, thank you so much. And, uh, and, and we will have you back because I, I'm not finished yet anyway, but, but I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, like I said, keep a leg on each side, stay in the middle. Well, and thank you, gentlemen. I think what you guys are doing is just so cool and so inspiring. So there we go. Till until next time. See you okay. next. Today's episode is brought to you by 40 Productions in cooperation with the Consultment Agency, a full-service agency that helps bring forward-thinking equine brands into the 21st century using digital skills and services such as website development, graphic design, social media, and media production such as the podcast you're consuming here today. Thank you so much for riding along with us today. Sign up at cowboyoffice.com to be the first to know about topics affecting the industry we love so much. You can reach out to us with topics you care about by finding us on TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and all podcast platforms. And remember, share this episode with someone that may enjoy it, because the more we can share our horses with others, the better our world will be.